When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When I was a kid, my dad was a cop. And we spent five seasons of Loose Units, the podcast, talking through his cases, but the unexplained and the paranormal kept rearing their heads. So this season, we're going to take a look at hauntings, ghost stories, and the crimes behind them. Because the story doesn't end when the killing is done. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Last week on Loose Units, The Shadow Files, we did part one of our look at The Family, an absolutely terrifying series of crimes that took place back in the late 70s and early 80s in Adelaide. Now, last week, we finished up by talking about one of the suspects, Dr. Peter Milhouse, who got away scot-free. And we also mentioned that the crimes picked back up on Thursday, August 27th, 1981. So that's where we're picking up right now. Now, Peter Stogniff was 14 years old, By all accounts, he seemed to be just a regular kid. He was heading off to go to the mall with his friends, and then he came back home, and he hid his backpack in the family's garage while his folks were at work. Then he headed back out towards Rundle Mall. Now, if you've been to Adelaide, Rundle Mall is fairly iconic. You know, it's where the big silver balls are. He went to meet up with his friend Daniel, and uh, he never arrived. And Daniel just assumed that, you know, something had happened. He'd, you know... He headed off to school because they were meant to go to school that day. But the teachers verified that, in fact, he was absent and he never returned home. A big search is underway. No one can find anything. They find his backpack hidden in the garage. Then, of course, the cops start digging Dad and, you know, they start to piece things together. They, they find out that he was meant to meet his friend. They find out that him and his mate were going to skip school. Uh, but that never happened. And then they kind of spend the next few days basically looking for Peter And the trail completely just goes... I mean, it doesn't go anywhere. That case kind of closes off. They don't find Peter. But then someone else goes missing while Peter is still missing. And that's Mark Langley, who was 18. So at this point, we're kind of dealing with two victims at once. And Mark goes missing February 27th, 1982. Paul, just coming back to Peter, as you said, he was 14 at the time. But he'd organised to meet, it was actually his uncle. They were going to meet at the Rundle Mall, but, and hand on heart, listeners, I was a serial wagger. You know what a wagger is, don't you, Paul? Yeah, I wagged once. I got really upset and uh, confessed I, it to you that night. I remember you came home to mum and myself and you were, you were so stressed and 
Christine and I were becoming very concerned that you were about to make an admission of something terrible. And then when you told us that you'd missed a day of school, Christine and I, we had to pretend that we were very concerned and, you know, gave you a bit of a lecture on why you should never do that sort of thing. But you weren't concerned because you were a bit of a rat bag and by comparison, I was... I was so bad. Okay. In fact, my parents were called to Beacon Hill High School uh, in 1975 to have a meeting with the principal as to why John Verhoeven should receive his school certificate, even though I got six A-levels, but I was rarely at school. Now, my point, I know that that's sort of somewhat convoluted what I've just said, but the thing is that I believe that Peter simply and cleverly hid his school bag in the garage so he could then spend the day enjoying the town. I mean, Rundle Street Mall is kind of the epicentre of Adelaide. Just explain why, sorry, why would you hide your bag? Is it because... Well, he's not going to be, if he's wagging school, I mean, kids used to wear school uniforms. He's not going to be getting around Rundle Street Mall with a bag on his back. So he leaves it in the garage. Then once he's had his fun that day, he comes back home, he retrieves his school bag and his parents are none the wiser. He's clever and shrewd for a 14-year-old. And... The tragedy, of course, is that he never made it home. And as you rightfully said, he was not discovered for approximately 12 months. Mm. So, you know, and he was discovered accidentally. And that's the case with many, many murder victims throughout the world. Yeah. Many, many people are discovered accidentally. He's hiking through the middle of nowhere. And yeah, hiking playing. through the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throwing, throwing a dog a bone and the bone comes back with a, with a skull. Let's get to the specifics of how he's found art because we'll keep this chronological. Because mm-hmm. while he's missing in that year that you mentioned, um, Mark Langley, the next victim, goes missing as well. Mm. So this is in 1982 which which kind of hits home a little bit because I was born one year later actually less than a year later so this is well within you know this is very very close to the kind of loose units era at this point you are in the police force yes February 27th 82 you're in the police force at this point okay and Mark heads to a, an 18th birthday over in northeast Adelaide in I think it's a suburb called Windsor Garden Windsor Gardens and his family drive him there, right? And they go to the party as well. And then he heads out afterwards to, you know, hang with some mates. And he's driving around with several people who are going to become important in this story. He's driving around with his friend Ian and Paula, who is Ian's uh, girlfriend slash partner or whatever. And then they have kind of an argument about something fairly unimportant. It goes on for a little while. Um, they're parked apparently near the Torrens River, near this War Memorial Drive. And so he kind of jumps out of the car and just he's just had enough. So he heads off. And then Paula and Ian drive off in the other direction. And then, you know, they, they kind of calm down. Dad, you know when you have those little kind of arguments mm. and they go, oh, shit, we should go and pick him up. And they go mm. back and he's gone. 
And their assumption is that now in the last episode, you were detailing the fact that you used to hitchhike and that hitchhiking Mm. is something that people don't do anymore because of cases like this. Mm. And their assumption was that he'd hitched a ride. Yeah, talk about being wrong place, wrong time, Paul. I know. Isn't it amazing how a serendipitous chain of minor events, okay, you have an altercation, Mm. you're at the crossroads, metaphorically, whereby you could have either stayed with the couple, but when you're in a car and you have an argument and it's just, you can cut the air with a knife, we've all been in that situation, in a sort of a moment of, you know, sort of perhaps rage or just just thinking, I just can't, I just need to just cool down. And, you know, when he left that motor vehicle and the other couple left, they then, as you say, they then thought, hang on a sec, you know, you you calm down, you come back and he's gone. Try and imagine, as we often do in these stories, Paul, is how the couple would feel today. Mm -hmm. Because you can't turn back the hands of time. No, and at that point they didn't actually know because the police hadn't announced that there was some sort of serial element to this because they didn't know. So Mm. it's not like during, you know, the... um, the Son of Sam stuff or, you know, during, um, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy, you wouldn't be sitting there going, man, it's really dangerous out there, but we're going to go and party anyway. At this Mm. point, you know, they may have read about some murders, but it's a few years apart. They wouldn't have made a connection. They certainly wouldn't have gone, well, there's a killer kind of roaming around grabbing people off the side of the road. You know what I mean? Mm. It had been common knowledge. You know, these, these offenders of which, in my opinion... I've done a lot of research, Paul. It's intriguing. I understand why it has captivated the city of Adelaide. When we did the live show down there, you know, those comments I made about someone in the audience, I I stand firm and believe that it's such a terrible, terrible case. It, It affected so many people. Some of the offenders, without a doubt, are alive today. Some of them, no doubt, living in Adelaide. There are people in Adelaide that either know of or associate with or work with because I've done a lot of research about what some of these suspects went on to do and some of them have gone on to lead relatively in inverted commas normal lives and they're involved in all sorts of you know hospitality and they're just kind of on the outside normal people but this particular case and we've covered many many quite frankly messed up and horrendous things but what happened to this particular gentleman, Mark Andrew Langley, is is really pushing the envelopes of, of uh, I was sort of going to say morality. I'm trying to sort of figure out how these people just did what they did to this guy. Well, he was found, I mean, at this point, we're still waiting for the previous victim to show up. Obviously, given mm. the gift of hindsight, we know what's going to happen to mm. him. What, mm. Nine days later, they find Mark Langley's body near Mount Lofty. He's still wearing the clothes he was seen in when he was kind of when he you know when he had that fight. They do their postmortem and they call in forensics. It's basically the same thing. It's you know it's the like you said the anal injuries which caused internal bleeding. They cleaned him. There seemed to be a degree of planning. I keep seeing reference to this odd incision, like a surgical incision, um, made just below his belly button, and. It was closed back up, so they stapled it shut, and they used um, some kind of, uh, it says here, Johnson & Johnson surgical tape. 
and they kind of, you know, they'd cleaned it and they'd shaved it and they'd prepped it. So there was some sort of surgical implement inserted in there. Now, Dad, if you were to guess, because at this point they found a few bodies and then they find this one where there's basically like a surgical scar, which has been kind of hastily done, but done with some degree of experience or expertise. What would Mm. your prediction be? Bearing in mind where it is on the body. Mm. Paul, basically the police at least had some inkling that I, I, I don't like people to think that I enjoy saying what I'm about to say, but it's kind of creepy and weird, but you know, it's, it's a fact and it's a very important fact. And it's, and that is that we're talking anal insertion. Okay. So when they, um, they did the post-mortem, they discovered that a part of his small bowel was missing. The hair around his the pubic bone had, as you say, been shaved. Mm. So the hypothesis with the police at the time was, and this is a hypothesis that I don't agree with, is that they opened him up to retrieve something that had gone up into his anus, but they couldn't get it, they couldn't remove it. The police hypothesis being that they were trying to retrieve some evidence that may implicate whoever. To me, that sounds bizarre. And I don't understand if you're looking for something that has gone so far up the, you know, up the anal canal, if I can put it that way, that you would then prepare the body neatly, shave it, make an incision reach down and I've been involved in plenty of post-mortems and when you cut a person you know preparing for post-mortem and you look inside there is so much it's so neatly packed that if you were to pull everything out and then try and put it back into the cavity you'd have two chances none and Buckley's but that's I guess I'm sort of digressing I'm just trying to explain that this it's so neatly packed it's like getting a sort of a a hundred foot rope and someone says to you, look, I want you to sort of fold it and curve it and twist it and fit it into a tiny, tiny little box. No, I get that. I mean, but but how does that, how does the length of the intestines prohibit them? You know, if something got stuck inside them and they needed to get it out, you know, let's say it, it had fingerprints on it or it would lead police to a specific spot or it would, you know, give them away in some way. Oh, well, okay. If it, I, I hear where you're coming from. So I guess cut to the chase, Paul, I think it mm. would have been a brutal incision, yeah. perhaps frenzied. They would have torn open the cavity. They would have just reached in, felt around. It would be easy to squeeze an intestine and feel an object. Let's, let's remember, Paul, that with these people, we're not talking small objects. There's, there's a, we're not delving deep into this horrendous story, there was a case where... One of the witnesses in the court case saw, he went to a party one night and he he went into this room and he saw Von Eyman lying next to a naked, unconscious male. This unconscious male had two objects inserted into his anus. He had a large torch, I'm not sure whether it was turned on, and he also had a very large metal crochet hook. It's diabolical. It's so... I mean, the torch thing, I'd like to know whether the, whether the torch went in lens first or the, the lens was sticking out. If it's lens first going in with a hook, 
the mind can only take you to the darkest places where they're actually almost with his von Eymann was just just doing something that's it's pretty pretty indescribable proclivities aside you don't agree with the idea that they cut him open to get something out of him that would have later I think Paul I'm, I'm sticking by the fact that if you know I mean let's try and put yourself at the scene try and visualize what you're looking at but also try and visualize the fact that you're dealing with some very very and mum being very, very kind and polite by saying disturbed, these people have lost lost their grip on, I guess they're chasing the eternal thrill and it's taking them to Hades as far as I can see. Um, as I said, I believe that if, they, if that's the hypothesis, I mean, also, why wouldn't you just, and excuse my grossness here, but why just wouldn't you use your hand and, and enter by, via the anus? And pull the thing out. Let's move past the surgery because it seems like it's sort of a very odd, very disturbing, true detective-ish dead end. But Mm. long story short, Mark is found in the middle of nowhere. And they thought, based on the amount of kind of decay that's happened, that he was killed just after he went missing. Which means he was sitting out there for about a week. Mm. So he was killed and dumped pretty quickly. Mm. But... While they're testing his body, they find... Now, this is this is an interesting part to me. Mm. They find the same drug, I believe. It's a, it's chloral hydrate. And mm. it's the same drug that was found in Alan's body. Yep. Um, they couldn't... As we established, they couldn't check Neil Muir for it because his organs were removed, if you recall. Mm. They took his mm. organs out, yep. hollowed him out and put... Yeah. So, they couldn't test his blood. But with Mark Langley... And he's got this drug in his system. It's called. It was called Randy Mandy at the time. Mandrax. Mandrax is the mm. actual name. It's a sedative, quaaludes, whatever you want to call it. Didn't have a great reputation. As we're going to loop back, there's a certain suspect who actually prescribed this stuff and therefore had access to it. But a few months later, they find Peter. Um, 14-year-old Peter who we were talking about earlier. This is a really upsetting one. Dad, you were a firefighter and you did a lot of a thing called backburning. Can you explain mm. backburning to people? Backburning is <clears throat> you've got um, the fire coming towards you. Yeah. And what you do, you use uh, like a drip torch, which is a combination of one-third petrol, two-thirds diesel. You light it and you basically place the wick. It's gravity-fed and you basically drip flammable material onto the grass which is between you and the fire front and you create a rim of burnt or scorched earth and the theory is that as the fire begins to reach you it then all of a sudden is starved of one of the essential ingredients in with combustion which is fuel that's in theory and let's just stick with that for the time being so on this particular farm there's a farmer and he's back burning what happened was the back burning revealed, once it had sort of burnt out all the, the overgrowth, it uh, revealed something quite horrendous. The farmer, once the fire passes, is confronted with a human skeleton. Now, bearing in mind that Peter's, he was at the time 14, mm. uh, and this is approximately almost a year later, you know, the, the, the farmer sees that what he's or sees what he's confronted with which is a human skeleton but it's clearly been cut up uh, mutilated he calls the police 
and the police, you know, they they begin to realise uh, what they've got here. And I'm I'm I'd, I'd like to read the the pathology report because I'm not sure how they actually identified the remains. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Um, do you have any information on that? No, but so you've got the actual pathology report from this? No, I don't. I wish I did. Oh, I'd I thought like, you said you'd like to read it like you had it. No, okay. I'd love to read it. I'd, li- I'd I, like to find out how they actually... It, it probably... Mm. My, my strong feeling is that it was through dental records. Well, um, I don't know how they ID'd him, but I found that they the... Um, the uh, the forensics people basically they found these spots in in the bones just above the knees and in his back mm. where a saw had been used mm. to actually mm. cut him up. So they could, they found the points where he was sawed up. But yes, I'm not, yes. yeah, I'm I'm also not sure how they identified him no. based on. And also, <sighs> Paul, we need to figure out. I mean, I don't I don't think it's possible with just the skeleton. Mm. to establish whether or not 
uh, you know, the, the, the young Peter, you know, was, um, was tortured and was oh, cut and also, up, you know, yeah. whilst he was alive. And you wouldn't be able to find things like, you know, you probably wouldn't be able to find any trace of any chemicals of any, um, any of the Mandrax. Yeah, but I'd like to, look, they used to use up to five different drugs, these people. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, how did they, um, you know, how did they lure? I mean, it's just unbelievable. But the thing, Paul, is that when this young boy went to the Rundle Mall, um, you know, on, on his day off sort of, and he's by himself, um, there was a witness that said he was at the Tea Tree Plaza and someone matching Noel Brook's appearance. Now, Noel Brook was a transvestite and long-term friend of Van Eyman. And he lived in the same suburb as Peter. I mean, it's all just, it's so circumstantial and so powerful. And you can understand the police. Um, they would have received so many tip-offs. As we've stressed before, it's believed that up to 150 boys were raped, some murdered, kidnapped, tortured, some of them were held for up to five weeks. Now, you don't just, when they say held a young boy up to five weeks, we're not talking sitting at the dining table and watching TV and having cheese and crackers. It's not a social occasion. These no, you're chained, to, you're chained to a radiator or something. Could that be yeah. what the scar was from? Could you, would you, is it possible that they were administering some sort of drug cocktail you know, via the abdomen? Paul, that's so fascinating. I mean, you know, maybe suppositories. I, I, mate, it's too it's diabolical. But of course, look, when you're torturing someone, also, if you if you're talking, it's bad enough being being an adult thinking about these things. But think about, um, you know, young young people. <sighs> yeah. Um, just you can't. I don't know. I just it's just freaks me out actually. But it's um, terrifying. Now, okay. Well, look, as 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 odd as, odd as this may seem. We actually need to move on to the next victim. Mm. So, victim number five. This is in 1983. It's in June. And this victim is one of the really... I don't know what the what the word I would use is, but his name was Richard Kelvin. He was almost 16. And his father was Rob Kelvin, who uh, was a Channel Line news host. Mm-hmm. So, you know, very, very high profile, and he's got this son who's extremely popular, extremely well-liked, very, you know, very, very public-facing. Mm. And it was June the 5th, 1983, which is a Sunday, and Richard Kelvin is kicking the soccer ball around with his dad and a mate of his. And they're at a park, and... um Rob, uh, and, and then his father decides to walk back home, leaving, you know, his son and his friend. Uh, you know, it, This is like a street away from the house, and it's still early. And so Richard and his mate keep playing for a while. So at that point, Boris needs to head home. And so Richard walks him to the bus stop on O'Connell Street, and he waits there for the bus to leave. Boris hops on the bus. Uh, Richard begins to head back home, um, which according to reports, is less than 400 metres from the bus stop back to his house, where his dad is literally, his dad's literally there. And he doesn't make it back. 
So he goes missing in that sort of weird in-between spot. He's dropped his friend off the bus stop. Friend gets on the bus, walks less, you know, does that little very, very small walk to get back home and he disappears during this point. Obviously, the publicity starts to really ratchet up because, you know, his father is a is a news presenter. I believe that Richard had a girlfriend at yep. the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so the yeah. thought was, the thought was, yeah, uh, he wouldn't just run off if no. he had so much stuff going on in his life no, that seemed extremely positive. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and then they do a kind of a, you know, they, they do an up and down of the neighborhood. The cops are kind of asking questions and... This is kind of the most upsetting account to me. You mentioned last week, in last week's episode in part one, um, that witnesses actually heard something during this Mm, kidnapping. They've described them, and I've never heard this um, before, this term. We all know the term eyewitness, which is pretty sort of self-explanatory. But this particular person was described as an ear witness because they didn't see anything, but they heard shouting. They heard mm-hmm. various voices, and some of the voices, Paul, were female. Then they heard a car with a loud muffler speed off. Okay. Now, they also know that Von Eyman, he, as part of the ruse for getting youths to help him with the car, there were various things he would do, but one of the things he quite often did was he would loosen his muffler on his car. Now, if you loosen the muffler, you get this terrible sort of, sort of, sort of throaty... Uh, it sounds sort of a spluttery, it just doesn't sound right, and yet technically it's not that bad. But very bad, of course, if you want to drive on a public street and if you want the police to hear or sort of if you want to draw attention to yourself, that's something that you can do. But another technique that Von Einen used is, um, I don't know whether you know this, Paul, but Back in the 1970s and 80s, cars had what were called chokes. Have you ever heard that expression? I've, yeah, I've heard the expression, yes. Okay, so in the mornings when it was cold, to start your car, that there'd be like a, a knob on the dashboard and you'd pull it out and you'd pull it out halfway or full way. And what you were actually doing, you were almost flooding the engine with petrol. In other words, you were creating a really, really volatile, explosive um environment to help you start the car but once the car started you'd then slowly push the choke back in so one of the techniques that our our friend von einen would do is he'd pull the choke out there'd be an unsuspecting boy in the vicinity and he'd try and start the car now if you left the choke out you'd flood the engine so it actually wouldn't start and that's one of the techniques or there was the faulty loose muffler but normally if you had a faulty muffler you would then you wouldn't drive for too long because as i said you would draw the suspicion of the police and the police yeah it's noisy they'd pull you over and they'd approach the car and they'd see a a young boy well certainly not 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 happy to be in the car if he was still conscious and um you know, this, this young boy, this 15-year-old, I'm looking at a photograph of him now and it's just, you know, God, you'd never get over it. And um, he was kidnapped. And, you know, it's, 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 it's wintertime. Um, it's about, you know, his dinner was on the table. The family were just expecting their son to come in he wanted to make a phone call to his girlfriend. 
And that's the last anyone saw of him until um, about five weeks later. Of course, it's come to light that he was actually held captive for five weeks. Yeah, so when they found him... Um, he was wearing the same clothes he was wearing that day. He'd been joking around with his friend and he was wearing the family dog's collar. So he was still wearing the collar at this now, point. Now, that is so fascinating, Paul. Well, that it's is... weird because, yeah, the, the first but, instinct when I read that was I thought it's some sort of sex thing, but it yeah. turns out he'd been kind of, you know, goofing around. No, but can you can you imagine this, um, you know, Van Eynum? Can you imagine him coming along yeah. and seeing a... I'm going to say this, bearing in mind that there may be family members listening, but he was a very, very good-looking young guy. You know, just bloody good-looking. And to see, if you're a psychopathic predator and a just a... I can't even think of words to describe this phenomenon, but can you imagine he's driving along and he sees a, a, a good-looking young boy with a dog collar? Can you imagine the first thing he may have thought was, wow, this guy's into bondage. That's how I thought. Did you think similar things? I thought I thought they may have put it on him as a kind of demeaning thing, but actually he was wearing it already. But yeah, it, it, is, it is interesting that you thought that because it definitely occurred to me. But what's mm. really sad to me is when they find the kid and they find his body and they do an analysis and they see that he's got, you know, the same injuries mm. as uh, the previous four victims and they figure out that he's been held captive for ages because he's not nearly as decomposed as he would be if he'd been, mm. you know what I mean? Like he's been, mm. they measure the time he's been gone for mm. and then they figure no, he, out how And he'd long. been washed and redressed as had happened to a, a couple of the previous people. The yeah, washing the and they... redressing is just, that's, it, it's, it's conf, it confounds me, Paul. It, it's, to me, it's, it's very, sort of more yeah. ritualistic. It's very, very, very creepy. I think my problem here is that they finally get a read on the drug cocktail that mm. these people... And yep. I think at this point, it's pretty apparent that it is a group uh, because of the weird... So, you know, you get like a map with the pins and you start kind of going, all right, this person operates within this area. The areas they operated in didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And I, the, their thought then, I believe, was, well, there's more than one person, which means they can cover a larger area. But anyway, they find, like you said... Lots of different drugs in his system, all of them sedatives to keep the person in check. So you've mm. got Rehypnol, Valium, uh, Amitil, Noctec, and obviously Mandrax. Yeah. yeah? What, a, what a deadly combo. So then they link him to the two other victims they found who they could actually test for drugs, and that was Mark Langley, Alan Barnes. The injuries all look pretty much the same. Mm. And at this point, they've got two victims whose limbs were sawed with what looks like the same device. So they can now connect five young men suddenly the families of these young men you know at that point you become aware that the person you lost it's not an isolated thing it's part of something much larger yeah mm -hmm. and at that point you've you, you know it's what is it four years after the first murder so this stuff's been going on quite a while these mm. you know these people have been operating pretty much with impunity we're going to close out by looking at one last account and this is from Late 1982, there was a guy called George. He was a hitchhiker, and uh, do you, have you have you read about George no, yet? No. Okay, so George accepts a ride from a hitchhiker, um, and there is a cooler in the back seat, and the older man, who's the driver, um, offers him a beer, and then 
George starts to feel a little bit odd, a bit groggy. He mentioned that the person he was with, the older man, uh, had dyed his hair. And last week I, I suggested that this might be because he was trying to age himself down to appeal to younger men. They go to this guy's house and George is kind of just like fed like, like heaps and heaps of alcohol. And there's all these older women there flirting with him. And they give him some what are apparently no-dos, which is like a caffeine pill. Um, because they wanted to kind of, you know, they tell him it's going to help him stay awake and party. And then he starts to not really remember a great deal. He sleeps with one of the older women, and then he discovers that the woman is actually transgender. Mm. And then he says he doesn't remember anything else. He wakes up the next day, and he's in a lot of pain. So he goes and reports a sexual assault, walks the police through all kinds of stuff, and then they do an analysis, and they find that he's got uh, injuries inside his anus, uh, you know, which backs his story up, mm. and he's been drugged with Mandrax. So, Terrible. he gives a description of the guy, and because he can't remember much, he mm. can't really give him anything particularly useful. So he mm. can't, you can't press charges because he doesn't know who he's, he's talking about. Um, but the police come back to that story uh, later in 1983 after they've got these five victims, you know, on the map. Mm. And they're starting to think that maybe it's all linked. You know, you know, this guy, Paul, his name was Dennis Edward St. Dennis. He was a cross-dresser, okay. But he was also Von Eymann's hairdresser, and he used to dye his hair. Right. And he, he lived with his mother, as did Von Eymann. So there's a touch mm. of... That's, to me, kind of a bit... Not, not odd, but it was... Perfect. They it's could a, then bring these people back. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm looking at this. Uh, if you're a police officer at this point, you're looking at these five victims. You are super angry and stressed, and you're trying to find links. And you, you know, you've got a bunch of them have been given this drug, and then you might come across this report from back in 1982, which is over a year ago, where a hitchhiker has been, you know, sexually assaulted in a very strange manner by these people and was given Mandrax. And so they start looking through the lists of suspects who might be able to give prescriptions for Mandrax, and who do they come across? But Bevan Spencer von Einem. And that's who we're going to be dealing with in next week's episode, part three of our look at the family. Things get even stranger and even more horrible at this point because von Einem is, you know, a monster in this story, and, and things really do start to kind of deepen and unravel. We hope you've kind of gotten through this episode relatively intact we hope we haven't triggered anything we know these episodes can be quite difficult if you live in adelaide we've already got some interesting tips dad that i'm going to talk through with you uh, off the air for next week's episode from people in adelaide who have some more information awesome. for us awesome love yeah. it i'm loving this. this is our first three part we've ever done absolutely and i you know it'd be nice if it was under better circumstances but i think it's important to look at these crimes and try and fi- you know try and figure out why people do these things and try and honor the victims and try and explore, you know, Australia's history because it's not all, it's not always pretty. Anyway, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Stay safe and we'll see you at the end of this week for some loose ends. Bye everyone. Cheerio. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.